First Peter chapter 4, verse 17. For the time has come that judgment must begin at the house of God. And if it first begin at us, what shall the end be of them that obey not the gospel of God? And if the righteous scarcely be saved, where shall the ungodly and the sinner appear? Wherefore, let them that suffer according to the will of God commit the keeping of their souls to him in well-doing as unto a faithful creator. In the book of Romans, which was not written by Peter, but rather by the Apostle Paul, in the fifth chapter, as Paul is kind of taking that time to build, um, build a, a treatise for what it means to be a Christian, he explains the gospel, he explains salvation, and as he comes to chapter 5, he seeks to um, give to the believer kind of a synopsis of what it is that we now have now that we're Christians. And he says these words. He says, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And not only, but he says we also have access by grace into this faith wherein we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And then he says, and not only this, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation works patience, patience experience, and experience hope. And hope makes not ashamed because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost which is given to us. So what the Apostle Paul essentially does in those verses of Romans chapter 5 is he sums up in six words what this whole Christian thing is over the lifetime of our experience in walking with the Lord. It starts peace with God. It gains us access to him, bold access, 24-7. We can come to him whenever we want. Then he uses the word tribulation and suffering. Tribulation and suffering is a vital, essential, inescapable part of this process. But what it does, that tribulation and suffering, is that it produces in us hope, patience, and ultimately the manifestation or the perfection of the love of God within our hearts. So peace, access, tribulation, patience, hope, love. I thought it was six words. I just had seven fingers up. but <laughs> That's the entirety of this whole thing that we're in. Now, we would like it if we could have all of those words except for the one in the middle, suffering. We would like it if suffering wasn't a part of this whole thing that we call Christianity. But it is. And it's inescapable. And it causes us to question and say, why, God, does that have to be a part of what we experience and what we go through? Well, Peter, recognizing this difficulty and this struggle in the Christians in his day, and seeking to put pen to page and to explain the reason for suffering in the Christian life, he writes a letter with that intent purpose. He takes that one word, suffering, that one aspect, and he writes a whole letter to give to us insight and understanding as to why suffering 
is important in the Christian's life. And so he's given us reasons thus far. That suffering serves to refine us and to burn away the things that don't belong and purify the things that do. Suffering serves to shape us, to mold us and make us into what we're supposed to be from what we were when we were found by Jesus Christ. Suffering also serves the purpose of God of showing us off to a lost and dying world that needs to see that there is an answer for the sufferings that they're going through as well. As they see us suffer, bearing it in Christ, it's a witness to them of the power of God within our lives. So to show us off. And then also because of the great changes that suffering produces within our lives. Suffering changes us. And so Peter has given us these reasons as we've gone through this epistle. Now in the passage that's before us at the close of chapter 4, he gives to us a final reason why we go through suffering, why we experience pain as a part of our Christian life. And it's summed up in one word that Peter uses here in verse 17. It's the word judgment. He says, For the time has come that judgment must begin in the house of God. Now, typically, when we hear the word judgment, we picture somebody standing on a street corner with a sandwich board that says, hellfire and damnation, turn or burn, judgment is near, you know, the kind of thing. And we think of judgment as being just simply punishment or destruction or condemnation that's going to come from God, that in his fiery, thunderous wrath, he's going to pour out his indignation upon us and we're just going to be judged by God. And that's kind of our concept concerning judgment. But what the word uses or or means that Peter uses here is literally a decision, a sentence, a matter to be judicially decided. And so what it means in the context of a believer's life is that it means a sorting through the facts of an issue, getting to the bottom of something and bringing it to its proper conclusion. I don't think there's a greater illustration of what it means uh, or, or, or to illustrate what it means than to just think of Judge Judy. I mean, you don't I mean, she's been on long enough that probably all of us at least know who she is. But nobody comes in her courtroom and, and, and by the end of dealing with her, everything isn't out there on the table and everybody knows what's going on. I mean, she just has the ability to hear one word and boom, it just all makes sense. And she just, whoa, 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 stop right there. What did you just say? And she just sifts through the whole thing, divides everything where it goes and says, you're right in this, you owe him this, and you're wrong and you did that, now get out of my courtroom. And in a sense, that's a great picture of what it means here when it says that judgment must first begin in the house of God. It means that there's going to be a taking up of a cause or the taking up of a situation sifting through all of the various attributes of it, sorting it out and bringing things to their proper conclusion. And so there's something that's confused and clouded and it needs to be brought to clarity and there needs to be sentence that's executed concerning it. Now, depending on who you are, judgment can mean different things if it's fallen upon your life. For the unbeliever, if they enter into judgment with God, that very rightly may end in final condemnation. A person who doesn't know the Lord Jesus Christ that hasn't turned from their sin and turned to Him as the righteous requirement of the law and had salvation gifted to them through His cross and through His sacrifice. If that person comes into judgment with God and it doesn't bring them to that place where they give their lives to Him, 
then the judgment of God for them might be hell and an eternal separation and hellfire. But for the believer, that's not necessarily the case. It's not the case. For the person who's put their faith in Jesus Christ, the punishment for our sins has been placed upon him. The condemnation of hell and separation has been absorbed by Jesus. But Peter says here that the church or the house of God can enter into judgment with God. So what does that mean for a Christian to come through God's judgment? What it means is that God is going to deal in your life and he's going to sort through the various things for the sake of correction and setting things the way that they're supposed to be. And the fact of the matter is that when God judges in the life of a believer, though it isn't unto condemnation, and though the intent of God is good in what he's seeking to bring out from the whole thing, it is a very painful experience and not something that we would ever desire to go through or that we would want to go through. And it absolutely is a source of suffering when it comes down upon a life. Now, ever since the beginning of the church age, ever since Peter's era, the church, by and large, has existed, grown and been maintained through various seasons. And those seasons are always an outpouring of God's Holy Spirit, blessing from him and great harvest, like what happened on the day of Pentecost. Remember, the spirit came, 3000 were saved. There was a time of great revival that took place and a great turning to God and, and a great move of God that happened in Israel and, and then throughout the world in the days of the early church. But that season of outpouring and blessing and harvest is always followed by a season of coasting, cooling, and compromise. When the church or the Christians just kind of settle into their routine, settle into the status quo of the way things are, they get comfortable, they enjoy what God has done and what God is doing, and, and, and things begin to cool. Devotion begins to cool. The passion and fire of worship begins to cool. The hunger and thirst for righteousness and the pursuit of holiness begins to cool. And slowly over time, as that cools, small compromises begin to attach themselves to the lives of God's people. And so it's a season of cooling and compromise. That's always followed by a season of coldness, deadness, and drought. Anytime there's distance or a cooling, and the things come into our lives that keep us from God, that's going to bring us somewhere. And the somewhere that it brings us is it brings us to a place where Christian... Or Christianity is nothing more than a name or a form within our lives, but it's void of all power. The life of it is gone. The meaning behind it is gone. And it's nothing more than just a name. I'm a Christian. I go to church. I do certain things. But the passion and the fire and the love that is to exist between me and the Lord is all but gone. It's cold, dead. It's drought. And then that season is always followed by an awakening when God again comes into the midst of his people, there's a shaking, there's an awakening, there's hope, and then the, the, the cycle renews. There's a period of outpouring, a period of blessing, and a period of great harvest that comes into the church again. It has been that way since Pentecost, since the very beginning, all the way throughout the church age. You can track it and you can follow it and you can see that there have been these seasons and this cycle of God's dealing. And it is going to be that way all the way up until the end. Now, there's one exception to that cycle. And the exception to that cycle is that the final generation, 
right before the Lord returns, is going to experience that cooling and then that coldness and then that drought. And then rather than there being a period of revival and blessing and outpouring and harvest, there's going to be an apostasy and things are going to continue to digress all the way up until the rapture. The reason we know that that's the case is because Jesus said that his coming will be like it was in the days of Noah. And in the days of Noah, you could search the entire world that was probably a population of several billion people in his day, and you could find eight believers in Noah's day on the face of the whole planet. Noah, his sons, Noah's wife, and Noah's sons' wives. And that was it. And so when it's all said and done, it's going to be flat. There's going to be an apostate time. Now, Peter tells us in our text here that time has come that judgment must begin in the house of God. And Peter wasn't living in the final generation. He wasn't the generation that saw the return of Christ. But yet he said, even now in his day, in my era, is a time when God is going to begin to take things up, sift through his house, set things in order because he's planning to move. And so the day of Peter's writing, what Peter saw is that he saw that some of the things that were happening in the lives of the people that he's writing to, the sufferings that they were enduring, were the result of God's judgment in dealing with them because of some of the things that were happening in their lives in the distance that had been created between them and God. Now, Peter knew something about this. Remember when Peter had walked with Jesus for three years? And he had a lot of good, but he still had a lot of bad. There was a lot of Christ, but there was still a lot of self. There was a lot of faith, but there was still a lot of self-will and zeal and self-confidence. And Jesus looked at Peter just prior to going to the cross, and he said to Peter, he said, Peter, in all of your self-confidence and boldness and all of the promises that you're making to me, that you're going to stand for me and die for me and all that you're saying... He says, I just want you to know that before the cock crows tonight three times, you're going to deny me three times. And Peter said, Lord, I'll never deny you. I'll die with you, but I won't deny you. That's that's just perish the thought. It can't happen. And Jesus looked at Peter and he said, Peter, Satan has asked for you. He desires to sift you like wheat, but I've prayed for you. And when you're converted, strengthen your brethren. Do you know what Jesus was telling Peter? He's saying, Peter, you know what? You're about to enter into judgment. A judgment is about to take place upon your life. Your case has come before the Father. Satan has spoken your name. God has examined the cause. And the Father is going to allow your life to be sifted. Do you know what it means to be sifted? If you take wheat that's in its raw form, just harvested, it's surrounded by a chaff and it's on a stalk. And in that, pro, in that phase of its, its lifespan, it can do no good for anybody. In order for it to be useful, it has to be sifted. It has to be broken. And so they would take it to a threshing floor and they would stomp it, usually under the weight of an ox foot. And the wheat would be separated from the chaff. And then the bundles of, you know, waste or not waste, but... Um, Leftovers would be thrown up into the air, the chaff would be carried away, and the wheat would fall back to the ground and then be gathered in to be sold and to be used. You know what it is? It's judgment. 
It's going through something, taking it apart piece by piece, removing what's wasteful and keeping what's substantial. And Peter knew about that. He went through it. And he was changed by it. And so he writes to these people here and he says that this is important in the lives of individuals from time to time. It's true for an individual. It's also true for a system. We read in the Bible throughout the book of Judges. Throughout the period of the Judges, we see God reviving and blessing and then sifting and judging and then bringing his people back up again. We read early in the chapters of Samuel that in the days when God wanted to bring forth Samuel and then David and Solomon, It says that Eli, the priest, who was the remnant of the old system, that Eli was old and well-stricken in years, that he was obese and he was sitting on a stool and the lamp in the temple was almost gone out. And God just paints a picture of what things looked like spiritually in Israel in those days. And it was so dark and dim and things were just old and decrepit. His sons were corrupt and he wouldn't reprove and rebuke them. And God brought judgment into the system in those days. He told Eli, because you haven't corrected your sons and because you haven't honored me, he said, no longer am I going to deal with you in this way, but you and your descendants are no longer going to be priests before me. And I'm going to do a new thing. And so God allowed the Philistines to come in. The Ark of the Covenant was taken and they declared Ichabod, The glory is departed from Israel. Eli fell off his chair, broke his neck. The head was separated from the body. Incredible picture of God putting to death a spiritually dead system so that he can raise up the new. And then what did he do? He raised up Samuel, who became the lamp of the nation. He ultimately raised up David and Solomon and the temple was built. And it was a period of newness and revival and freshness in the things of God. And so what Peter is telling us here, essentially, is he's telling us that before God moves in the world, whether he's going to refresh and meet new a generation that needs him, or whether it's the time of the end when he's going to come into the world and judge the world, and it's the final generation and it's over, listen, before he does either one of those things, he's going to deal with his house first. He's going to look into the lives of his people and he's going to see the spiritual condition that you and I are in and the condition of our relationship before him. And before he moves to raise up something new or to return and bring judgment upon the world in finality, he is first going to sift through his own house and set things right. And Peter says that's something that was taking place in his day and it's something that we need to be on guard for and on watch against in the days that we live in. So whether it's for renewal or the time of the end, God deals with his house first, then he moves. So what is the cause or what is it that God sees in the lives of his people that would cause him to judge? Why would God look at a Christian or a group of Christians or a generation of Christians and say to them, I'm going to begin to stir things up in your life and I'm going to bring judgment and sifting into your life? Three main things and then everything else branches off of those. Number one is hypocrisy. When God sees hypocrisy in the life of a believer, he sees in them that they have a profession of faith, but their profession doesn't match their practice. What they do is not equal to what they say or what they believe. It's what we would call a double life. And when God looks at a person and he sees that increasingly there is a distance between the profession and the ideal and what we actually are, 
then God is offended by that, and it's something that he is going to deal with. The second thing that will cause God to to take up judgment in a person's life is when there is a, a growing multiplicity of unsanctified priorities. Now, I know that's a lot of words, but I trust that you're smart people and that you caught it. But a growing multiplicity of unsanctified priorities, or I'll say it this way, is that you have a divided heart. You and I, it's possible for us to have a divided heart. Now, every one of us have, have multiple things going on in our lives, right? I mean, we have our, 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 our professional life, we have our family life, we have a marriage, we have our children that we deal with, we have um, our hobbies and our recreation, we have our goals and ambitions, we have a financial life. I mean, we, we have investments, we have um, things that we're doing, projects, goals. I mean, you can just literally subdivide a life into a thousand categories, and that's normal for every single one of us. And God doesn't ask that our lives not be that way. He knows what we deal with on a daily basis, and he's the author of all of those things. But here's what he asks of us. He asks that when we come to him and when we follow him, that he be the Lord over every single one of those areas of our life. So he's the Lord of my marriage. He's the Lord of my professional career. He's the Lord of my investments and of my finances. He's the Lord of my hobbies and my recreation and the things that I give myself to on the side. He's a Lord over my social media habit or, you know, whatever it is that I do in the course of my life or that has a place within my heart. His call is that he is the Lord over all of those things. And when I make him the Lord over all of those things in my life, those things become sanctified. They've been separated unto him. They are under his lordship. But what is always true about every single one of us at any given moment is that there are always some of those things that are sanctified and kept under him. But there's some of those other things that are not sanctified and kept under him. Lord, you can manage and hold on to these things. That's my church life. That's my uh, spiritual well-being. That's the things that are too hard for me. But Lord, these parts, these are my things. And these are the things that I hold on to. And these are the things that I manage. And these are the things that, quite frankly, I don't really want you involved in because I'm afraid of what you do with them if I let you uh, have lordship and control over those things within my life. Or I already know that you won't allow me to have those areas of my heart and I'm not sure I'm willing to put those things down yet so I'm just going to keep you out of it. And when God looks at a Christian and he sees that there's a multiplicity of unsanctified portions of my heart and of my life, meaning that my heart is divided and my devotion is split too many ways, then that is a reason that God will move into a life and he'll begin to sift that life and set things in order in the way that they're supposed to be. A third reason that God will uh, bring judgment upon a Christian in order to set things right is when he sees a condition of lukewarmness within that heart. And by lukewarmness, what we're referring to is what Jesus said uh, to one of the churches in Revelation when he said that you have become lukewarm, you've left your first love and your passion for me has cooled. And so no longer is there a zeal or a heat or a passion that you once had for me, but your devotion has become half-hearted. He's not really God, or I'm not really God in your life anymore. I'm not really the supreme affection of your life anymore. And Christianity has become merely a word. And here's the fearful thing about a lukewarm heart, is that you can have a lukewarm heart without the existence of some other sin. And so for that reason, you can think, well, I'm not mixed up in this. I'm not caught up in any bondage. I'm still keeping up with all the things that I'm supposed to do. 
And a lukewarm heart can kind of just go under the radar and day after day we can be growing more and more distant from the Lord and he can become estranged to us without our even perceiving of it. And when God sees a constant cooling in our lives with no conviction and no drive back towards him, that's a reason that he'll come into a life and he'll judge it. And when God sees these things in our lives and they become his assessment of us, then we move ourselves into a place where we're in danger of being sifted or coming under his judgment. What's the process of God's judgment? How does God judge when he's going to begin to judge within a life? It really happens in three phases. Phase one of God's judgment is a really great phase. It's God's favorite phase of the judgment uh, system, and that is called conviction. And that is that God will first allow his Holy Spirit to just touch our conscience in in a subtle way and just get our attention concerning the area of our life that, that he's got on his radar. And so we're convicted about our hypocrisy or we're convicted about our divided, unsanctified heart or our lukewarmness. Or we hear a message and that message speaks to us and we say, man, you know, I really do need to get back right with God. You know, I do remember a day when I was closer to him. Or we hear a series of messages. We turn on the radio and we hear it. Then we go home and our wife says it. And then we read a book and it's on the page. And then it's in the devotional that we read the next morning. And then the two, two or three church services, there's something that reminds us of it. And it just keeps coming up over and over again. And what God is seeking to do is he's seeking to get our attention with conviction so that we'll address the issue, bring it to him, and we can deal with it right there. Now, that's the easy way. How many of us do that? Sometimes by the grace of God we do, you know. But more often than not, we ignore that conviction and we say, well, I'm still okay, I'm doing all right, kind of like Samson, you know. And then God brings us into the second stage of judgment and that is what we'll call pressure. And that is where we begin to run out of room. Remember Balaam? Remember on the donkey? He was not going where he was supposed to go. And and as he was going, he saw that these two cliff edges were kind of closing in and he was funneling in and his legs started scraping up against the wall. And all of us can kind of relate to that feeling a little bit when we're moving in the wrong direction in terms of our Christian experience and God is allowing life to kind of close in on us. We're experiencing some of the bad fruit from the decisions that we've made and we're beginning to fear even and sense that, oh my goodness, if I don't do something about this, things might really get ugly within my life. That's the pressure phase. It's not too late there. That's a good time to turn around and say, okay, God, let's set things right. Let's have a searching. Let's just go into judgment right now. We'll sift through things, deal with things. Let's get back on track. That's what God wants. How many of us do that? Sometimes we do by the grace of God. But when we ignore his conviction and we plow through, though there's pressure and we blow through those barriers, ultimately God is faithful that he will not let us persist in something that will be a detriment to ourselves, our future, and our family. And he brings us into judgment where his discipline, his chastisement, his pressure turns into pain. And we go into that place now where God is judging. And it's usually very messy, very shameful, and it comes with much loss. And usually you can tell when you've entered into that stage because when you enter into it, you come into a season of life where you have extremely complex problems that have absolutely no human solution at all. And the reason why God brings problems like that into our lives is because he's seeking to get our attention and cause us to turn back to him. The best illustration of this uh, that I can give you without telling you 10 stories of real life people that I know and the things that have happened in their life comes right out of the Bible. 
In Genesis chapters 34 and 35, we're not going to turn there and I'm not going to read them to you, but I'm going to tell you what happened in them and I'm hoping that you'll go back and you'll read them later. God had a man whose name was Jacob. And Jacob was a saved man. He loved God. He was called according to his promise. He appreciated all that God had done for him. There was a a reality in his salvation. It wasn't fake. It wasn't uh, um, in any way uh, not real. He was blessed. All of those things were true. But over a long period of time, Jacob's devotion to God had changed and cooled. And he had become double-hearted, cold towards God. He had neglected his spiritual responsibilities. He was in a place where he was more concerned with earning a living than he was with living in obedience to God and being where he was. And Jacob found his 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 uh, um, life in a place where he was very far outside of the will of God and where God wanted him. God specifically said, I want you in this place. And Jacob had built a house in a completely different place. And he was kind of persisting in this rebellion against God. And in that place, God was patient with him. He was gracious. God continued to bless Jacob. God allowed prosperity to continue to come his way. Things were happening well for him. By the way, that's an extremely dangerous thing when you know you're living outside of the will of God and God is continuing to bless and to prosper and to do good for you. But that's what was happening for Jacob during that time in his life. He came to a point after all of that where For the good of his family and for the good of his future, God needed to move in and do something in Jacob's life to get him back to the place where he needed to be. Things needed to be set right. He came into judgment. So what happened? Well, all in a season, it happened suddenly, that Jacob's daughter was raped. She got too close to the world. She was dealing with a group of people that she had no business being with. They were living too close to a people that they had no business living by. And she was raped. Dinah was raped by the son of Shechem. Jacob tried to fix it with a quick marriage and a covenant that God didn't want him in. And in the process of all of that, two of Jacob's sons, Simeon and Levi, went into the city and they became mass murderers. And they killed all the men of the city. Murder one. So now Jacob has one daughter that's been raped, two sons that are mass murderers, And the other ten of his sons go in behind the two sons and they plunder and spoil the city and become guilty of grand theft, first degree. They take everything in the city. And so in one moment, Jacob's entire family life is defiled. His reputation is ruined and he's ashamed. And the condition of his spiritual maturity is so far down at this point that he is more concerned about the fact that his reputation is tarnished than the fact that his daughter was raped. And his sons have to rebuke him for it and say, Dad, you've got issues because you're more concerned about yourself than you are concerned about your family. And so the situation got extremely dark and things got extremely complex for Jacob because of the judgment of God that had come into his life. Well, what that did for Jacob is it brought him to a place where he woke up. And he realized that the reason why these things are happening to me is not because I've been a bad parent, It's not because I've just got bad luck or that my kids are bad apples or I just ended up with 12 dysfunctional people that I have to watch and oversee. He realized that the reason why these things are happening to me is because of the position and the condition of my relationship with God. 
And so he gets the message, and when you read chapter 35, he makes a change within his life. He says, pack your things, kids. We're leaving this place, and we're going to Bethel. That's the place where God told me to be, and so we're going to leave here, and we're going to go where God told us to be. Interesting that Bethel means house of God. We need to get back into the house of God, he told his family. The second thing he told all of his family, he says, bring forth all of the idols. I know that in your tents, in your in your homes, and in your possession are things that there, there's no business. Turn them in. Give your smartphones. Give me your Facebook passwords. Give me the Instagram accounts. Give me everything. I want all of the, all of the idols. Bring them here, and we're going to make a pile right now. We're going to purge this house. We're cleaning everything out that doesn't belong. And he buried them in the oak tree that was there in that place. And he, he said, we're, we're done with this. Then the third thing that he did is he built an altar. An altar in the Old Testament, it speaks of consecration and devotion. He said, I need to give my life back to God again and make him the first priority and the first thing in my life. And so he brought himself to rededication. And the result of that, going where he was supposed to go, getting rid of what he needed to get rid of, and consecrating his life back to God, is that it brought the blessing of God back into his life. God protected him from his enemies. God appeared to him and and recommissioned and reissued the promise that God had given to him previously. God revealed himself in a new and greater way than Jacob had known previously. And there was a revival within Jacob's heart. And the chapter ends with Jacob taking his drink offering, first mentioned in the Bible of a drink offering, Offering and pouring it out before the Lord. It's a picture of the total life being consecrated and sacrificed to God. The entirety of my heart, God, every part of my life, every part of what I am, every sector, every segment, I pour it out upon you. Very much like the alabaster box that the woman brought. Mary and broke over Jesus and let the aroma of it fill the house where she was in. Jacob said, God, I'm not messing around anymore, but my life now belongs to you. Listen, tribulation works patience, works hope, and it makes not a shame because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts. The suffering that judgment caused in Jacob's life brought him to the place where God set things in order for him And then amazingly, the narrative of Jacob ends and God begins dealing with the next generation. True to pattern. God deals with the fathers and then he begins working in the sons. A new revival, a new blessing is poured out. So I want to apply this and we'll go no further in the scripture, but I want to take this passage now and I want to let it search us a little bit and I want to ask a couple questions and let this search me. And I ask myself the question as I consider these things. When I look at my life, and more importantly than that, when God looks at my life, does he see hypocrisy in me? I'm not asking, what does everybody else see? Because it's very easy for us to hide what we really are behind a Christian facade of words and pictures and professions and services and things that we do for his name or things that nobody sees or secret ways that we know how to live in silence, you know. But when God looks at my life, does God see hypocrisy? Is there a difference in me between what I profess to be as a Christian and what I really am in secret? The second question that I want to ask myself is that is there a multitude of unsanctified sectors in my heart? Are there things in my life that I have not brought under the Spirit's control and said, God, I give you access to these things? I didn't even necessarily say that I'm going to remove them. But am I going to let God in to do what he wants to do with those things? If I could see my heart and if God could show me all of the various areas of my life, 
which ones belong to him and which ones do I control myself? Is there a multitude of those things? And is the status or God's assessment of my relationship with him under the banner of lukewarmness? Does he see my life as being lukewarm before him? I also want to ask myself the question, is God's assessment of my relationship with him what he intended a relationship between himself and man to be? Meaning that when God looks at any one of our lives, is he satisfied with the relationship that we have with him? I want to read to you just a couple of, uh, of, of things that God says concerning what a relationship with him is supposed to look like. This comes from Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 33 and 34. And it just deals with the new covenant, the, the, the terms of the relationship that we have with God. He says, but this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. He says, I will put my law in their inward heart parts and write it in their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother saying, know the Lord. For they shall all know me from the least of them unto the greatest of them, saith the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Is that a description of the relationship that that you have with the Lord as you sit here tonight? That there is such a a level of intimacy between you and him that that the will of God for your life and the law of God for your life is literally just written upon your heart. That you don't need to be told, you don't need to, to be exhorted, you don't need another Bible study or another radio message, but where you are in tune with the presence of his spirit in your life in such a way wherein if he wills something for your life, then that's the will that's played out within your life. That that's the kind of level of intimacy that you have with, with the Lord who's called you. I think of the promise that Jesus gave in John chapter 10, verse 10, when he called himself the good shepherd. He said that the thief comes not but to steal, to kill, and to destroy. But I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. I ask you tonight, when you look at your life and the condition of your relationship with God, can you say that I'm living an abundant life, that this is the abundance that I expected and that the omnipotent, omniscient, powerful, all-knowing, all-filling God who can do all things, that his presence in my life is an abundance. Or can I say, God, I know that there's got to be more. I think of what Jesus spoke in John chapter 15 when he spoke these words. He said, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, then you shall ask what you will And it will be done unto you. And herein is my father glorified that you bear much fruit. So shall you be my disciples. As the father has loved me, so have I loved you. Continue in my love. Is that the picture of my life when I think about what God has done in my life and what he's doing in my life? That I have a a vibrant communication and my prayer life is where it should be. And I'm seeing an answer to prayer as I talk to him. And then there's fruit that's being borne out in my life because of those prayers and that God is responding and, and that you can look at my life. He can look at my life and he can say, that's a fruitful life. There's much fruit that's coming from that life and it's a fruit that's remaining within that life. I think of John chapter 10, verses 3 and 4, earlier in, in chapter 10 when Jesus looked and he said this. He said that my sheep, they hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. Is that true of my Christian experience? Do I recognize his voice? 
Is there an awareness of it when he speaks to me and the way that he leads me? Is he a shepherd that I can sense his guidance and I feel his, his, his leading and his promptings and I'm responsive to those things? Is that real in my life? Or is it just words that I've heard a thousand times but I've lost the meaning of them or even the expectation that they could ever be true for me? Jesus would say in another place that because I go to my Father, you will do greater works than the works that I have done. Jesus spoke of Holy Spirit power that would be manifested in our lives by the coming upon and the baptism of His Spirit. He spoke of gifts and fruit. He spoke of His leading. He spoke of an abundant life. And I wonder that if God were to give to you and I right now a report card and say, this is what I see when I look at your life. What is the condition of my life or His assessment of that relationship that I have before Him? Is the presence of God real in your life? Ask yourself that question right now. Not just a question in the study. Or even when I say that, is that strange to you? You say, I don't know what you're talking about. You know, that sounds like something that maybe someone in the Bible would experience or, you know, someone else. But what do you mean the presence of God? Is that is that real in my life? What do you mean? It's supposed to be. We're supposed to know Him and walk with Him and, and sense His nearness day by day. But is it? Are you? Are you being filled with His Holy Spirit on a moment-by-moment basis, being led by Him, empowered by Him, fruitful for Him? Is there progress in a life of holiness wherein more of my life is being separated unto Him where He's taking a fuller possession of me? The Bible says that He's a consuming fire. Is the consuming fire of His person grabbing a hold of my heart? Or is there less and less of me? Is there an element of the supernatural in my life? Or am I just simply walking in the natural planes? Or am I just simply religious in my experience and my relationship towards God? And here's what we need to understand. Is that if we look at those things and ask those questions, we say, well, it's not what it's supposed to be. It certainly isn't. Understand that God isn't angry with us. And if we find ourselves in a place where God is dealing with us because of the lukewarmness or the casual hypocrisy within our hearts, What he's doing in our lives is not because he's angry with us. It's not punishment. But rather it's because he seeks to draw us back to himself. It's because he seeks to do something fresh. He doesn't want us to live distant and hollow lives. He's not content with that kind of a relationship with his people. And he knows that we're not content with it. And so God will sometimes bring judgment in order to bring us back to the place that we're supposed to be. Well, the question is, what then do we do if we find ourselves in a place where we say, I'm not in a good place, or the conditions for judgment are ripe within my life, what do I do? Notice in verse 19 at the closing of the passage, Peter writes this and he says, Wherefore, let them that suffer, and the context of this suffering is because of judgment that God is bringing into your life, he says, them that suffer according to the will of God, Commit the keeping of their souls to him in well-doing as unto a faithful creator. So there's two things essentially that he tells us here in this closing verse. He tells us this, that first of all, is that there is a will of God. And that the will of God for your life and for mine is that we be very close to him. That there be a vibrancy, that there be an alignment between our profession and our practice that there be a sanctification and a holiness within our lives, and that there be a passion between us and Him. And our, that's His will for our lives. That's what He wants for us, and that's what He wants. Now, there's two ways for us to get from where we are to the place that we know that we should be. The first of those two ways is that if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged of the Lord. 
1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 31 and 32. The Apostle Paul writes these words. He says, for if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened of the Lord that we should not be condemned with the world. And so it is an option for you and I to say, God, my life is not what it's supposed to be. I'm not where I'm supposed to be. And so, God, can we just do this now? Can we have a time where you just open up the files before me and you show me what's in my heart and we set things right, Lord, that we don't have to go to the next step of pressure or then pain? Can we do this in a simpler way? In Jeremiah chapter 10, the prophet Jeremiah was living in a time when the judgment of God was falling first upon the house of God. It was a time of severe judgment and the people's hearts were far from God. And God revealed all of this to Jeremiah. And Jeremiah realized that he wasn't just a a spokesman for God in those days, but that he himself was a part of the problem. And the way that Jeremiah dealt with it is that he chose to judge himself. And so he brought his own life before the Lord. And he said these words in Jeremiah chapter 10, verse 23. He said, O Lord, I know that the way of man is not in himself. It is not in man that walks to direct his steps. O Lord, correct me, but with judgment, not in thine anger, lest you bring me to nothing. That's what it means to judge yourself. It means that we come to the place where we realize, God, I am lukewarm. God, I am living a double life. God, I know I'm not experiencing what you are content with when you called me into a relationship with yourself. But God, what I also realize in the midst of that is that it isn't in me to be able to fix those things. I can't go into the registry of what makes me what I am. I can't adjust and change my passions. I can't change the fact that there's certain things that have gotten a hold upon my life that have become obsessions for me that I know aren't right, that I know are the wrong thing, but I can't let go of them. God, I know it's not in me to direct my own course. It's not in man. Therefore, Lord, would you please come into these areas of my life? Would you please renew my sanctification and my consecration and my commitment to you? Would you take up your place as the Lord over every area of my life? And would you sift through these things and set them right and make them what they're supposed to be so that I'm not condemned with the world and then brought to nothing? God, I don't want to see that happen in my life. So Lord, I'm bringing it to you. All that I am, I want to hold nothing back. Lord, let me be completely yours. That's what it means that if we would judge ourselves, that we would come to him in confession of the trueness of our state with honesty and openness and broken humility and say, God, fix this. He's so willing and waiting and wanting to do that. David in Psalm 51, that great psalm of his repentance, he said to God, he said, God, you desire truth in the inward parts. You don't desire sacrifice or offering, otherwise I would bring it to you, David said. You desire truth in the inward parts. I wonder if there's any of us here that would honestly allow God's searchlight to turn on in our hearts and say, God, expose it all. Before you, let it all be seen and known. And for your sake, Lord, let me hold nothing back. The other option, if we're not willing to go into self-judgment, is that eventually God will bring judgment upon our lives. But surrender and invitation and yielding 
will bring God's changes in our lives in a much needed way. The reason why tonight, as we close, I spend so much time on just talking about this one subject and just looking at these few verses is because by and large, from my observation as a pastor, what I see in the church of Jesus Christ, not here, obviously, but at large, you know, not you guys, but everywhere else but here, As I see that there is a, a lukewarmness, I see that there is more of what we could be experiencing in God than what we are experiencing in God. To put it in the most gracious terms possible. Is that it's true for me, I exhort myself, and it's true for you. Is that we're not where we should be. When we think about the things that God says in His Word that He wants for His people, when we consider what the church looks like in the model in the book of Acts and we hold it side by side with what we are, when we consider the person of Christ who is our example, or at least Paul, and we look at our own lives in the, in the searchlight of what those things are, we've got to honestly say, God, there could be more. There's got to be more of you than what I'm experiencing in my life. And from where we are right now and what God sees, I don't know. And I don't think we know either. Does God see us as in a place where we've just coasted and we're cooled and we're cooling? Or does he see us in a place where we're cold and dead and in a place of absolute drought? I don't know. But here's what I do know. I know that the cycle in the kingdom of God is going to continue. And I know that he is either going to revive his work in a new place, in a new way, with a new generation. And the old things will just die off like Eli in the corner, sitting in a room with the lamp almost gone out, the head separated from the body, and an obscurity and, and, and insaneness. It will just die and become nothing. And God will start something new somewhere else. Or, He'll bring us into that time of final judgment. The rapture will come, will go on into eternity, and judgment will come upon the world. But listen, Either way, whether it's revival that comes or whether it's rapture that comes, judgment begins in the house of God. Meaning that God is going to sift through the lives of his people and we already see it happening in many lives. And the choice is that we can either judge ourselves or we can be judged by him. And here's the bottom line. The musicians can come. The worship team can come. If you and I are going to see revival in our day, and we greatly need revival in our day, then it starts right here. The Bible says that if my people, which are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray, and turn from their wicked ways, and seek my face, God says that I will hear from heaven, and I will come, and I will heal their land. It starts in the house of God. That's why Peter says the time has come that judgment must begin in the house of God. I know that I find myself more and more praying for an outpouring of God's Spirit. Praying that He would stir us up, that He would awaken Dutchess County, New York State, the northeast of the United States, the entire country, as far as He desires for it to reach. That's my prayer and that's my desire. Sometimes you can think we're way too far gone for that. You look at what's going on in the world and you see the... Uh, news headlines and you see the condition of the culture and the places that we're... You, there, there's no way God's going to pour out His Spirit. We're just going in the tank. We're headed for judgment. No, no, no. Don't say that. The Bible says that we look not on the things that are seen but on the things that are unseen. The Bible says that we walk by faith and not by sight. 
Jesus walked into a room where a young girl was already dead and he brought her back to life again. He can do all things. And I think that the, the greatest thing that we can pray and give ourselves to is that, God, would you please come and visit us again? Because it's not in man to direct his own way. And unless you do, what will be the future of the church? What will be the generation of our kids? What will happen after that? But it starts here. It starts here. It starts in us. If my people, which are called by my name, will humble themselves. I pray that tonight that his word would search us. That he would let us see the condition of our hearts. And that he would draw us back to himself with a great drawing. And that we would see a move in our days. Amen? Father, we just thank you tonight for your word and we ask that, that Lord, you would please help us to judge ourselves that we would not be judged with the world. We ask, Lord, that you would just personally shine your light upon each one of our hearts and that, Lord, you'd bring us as a church into a place where you can pour out on us again. Father, we thank you for your promises. We thank you for your truths. We thank you for your ways. And we ask you, Lord, that we would just have more of you And so where there needs to be consecration, sanctification, separation from the world, where there needs to be an alignment, Lord, an adjustment made within us, we ask that you would do those things. And Father, we thank you that you love us enough to bring these things to our attention. And so I ask, Lord, that even now there would be conviction, that there would be pressure, that there would be a pulling, that there would be the still small voice in many of our hearts that you would say, please lay this thing down. Please set things in order and set things right. Father, it's our desire to serve you. There's no greater call. There's no greater purpose. Let your will be done, O Lord, in us and in the world and in our church in these days. Revive your work, O Lord. We pray with the prophet. Come down and visit the earth again, Lord. Melt the hardened hearts, Lord. Revive the lost. Bring in a harvest, Father. Bring times of refreshing upon your inheritance, a plentiful rain, Lord. We ask for these things tonight in Jesus' name. Amen.